This morning we're looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, now with our Bibles opened, we pray simply and humbly. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning we are still in John's prologue. John's introduction to his gospel, and he's laying out key themes that we're going to see as we go through this book. And so far, we've seen that Jesus is the Word, the ultimate revealer of God, the one who has existed forever with God the Father, and the one who is God himself. And he has the power to make us new because he is the God who speaks life and light into the darkness. We've also seen that Jesus is the true light. And there is only two responses that we can have towards Jesus. You can either receive him or you can reject him. Only those who have been born of God believe in Jesus and have the right to become children of God. And now this morning we will see Jesus, the incarnate redeemer and revealer the word who became flesh, who shows us his glory, his grace, and makes the Father known. In these verses, we will see the word who came to save, who came to reveal his glory, who came to give grace, and to make God known. My main point for this sermon this morning, the message that I hope you see in the text right here is this. Jesus' incarnation brings salvation, and reveals God's glory and grace. Jesus' incarnation brings salvation and reveals God's glory and grace. John, who wrote this gospel, wants us to grasp the fact that all of us, all that we need, all that we need for life and salvation is found in Jesus Take a look at verse 14. And the word became flesh. The word who was in the beginning, the eternal God, the son, the creator of all things became flesh. John is recording one of the most significant moments in human history where God condescended, God came down and took on human form. The eternal one 
stepped into time. In just four words, John makes the most concise statement about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in a manger in Bethlehem, but the second person of the Trinity did not come to being at that birth. In John 1.1, we are told that the word was in the beginning. He existed long before that birth. We are told that the word is God. And so in this statement, the word became flesh. John is saying that the eternal God who has existed forever took on human flesh. He became a human being. But he didn't cease to be what he was before. He didn't cease being the eternal God. He added human nature to his divine nature. He became the God-man. The fancy theological doctrine for this is called the hypostatic union. Jesus has two complete natures in one person. The hypostatic union is the, is the joining of the divine nature and the human nature in the person of Jesus Christ. He is both fully God and fully man. He's 200%. He's 100% man and 100% God. What a mystery. What a miracle. We could literally camp out on these this, this single verse for a couple of weeks. We're not going to do that. I'm going to move on, but we could. But in the Gospel of John, we will encounter both Jesus' divine nature and his human nature. In John chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Jesus gets weary and thirsty. Jesus needs to sit down. He needs a drink of water. In John 11, Jesus weeps. He expresses his deep grief at the loss of his friend Lazarus. And in chapter 19, he dies on the cross and he bleeds out. Jesus has a blood type. Jesus really took on flesh. He became a human in the fullest sense. He was fully human. But we will also see Jesus still retaining his divine nature in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle, John, or Jesus turns water into wine. No mere human can do that. In chapter 4, he heals the official's son who was sick, even though he was nowhere near the boy. And in John chapter 11, Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We see both his divine and human natures. The word became flesh. But it's interesting that John uses that word flesh instead of saying the word became a man or the, the word became a body, John uses that word flesh, or the word sarx in Greek. This word can have different meanings depending on the context. For example, the Apostle Paul, he uses the word flesh 
But most often when he uses that word, he's speaking of our sinful nature. But John is using this word in a different way. John wants his readers to understand that Jesus took on our frailty. He took on our weakness, the weakness of our human nature, but he did not sin. Jesus did not sin. In Romans 8, 3, the Apostle Paul says that God the Father sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The author of Hebrews explains that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he became flesh. But he clarifies that Jesus was sinless. Jesus did not sin. But why did the word take on flesh? Why did the word take on flesh? When he became flesh, he experienced true humanity. Like us, Jesus got thirsty and he got hungry. He slept. He felt pain. He cried. He rejoiced. He got angry. He prayed. He read the scriptures. He submitted his human will to the will of God. And then he suffered and he bled and he died. And he did this to identify with us. You may be here and you're suffering and you're going through a trial. You're going through a difficult moment in your life and you should find great comfort in this verse. The word became flesh. That verse that I just read in Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way as we are. Jesus knows the struggle. He's not a distant God. He's not removed from our experiences. He came and he experienced our frailty and our weakness. He came in the flesh to identify with us. But more importantly, he came to save us. Because all of us, all of us are separated from God because of sin. Jesus took on flesh in order to reconcile us to God. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, the author writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Through his flesh. Jesus became flesh so that his flesh could be tore apart in order to redeem us, to reconcile us back to God. As Hebrew says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All those Old Testament sacrifices were temporary, but the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God was permanent. No other sacrifice 
was needed. The word became flesh to save us. We'll learn next week, we'll we'll hear John the Baptist say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word became flesh. But why did Jesus have to be both fully God and fully man? Why is that important? We read from the Heidelberg Catechism earlier on in the service. This catechism does this incredible job of explaining the truths that we see in Scripture in a very simple way. And I'm going to use it again here because I find its questions and answers so helpful. So question 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, why did Jesus have to become fully man without sin? The answer, he must be fully man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be without sin because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. So Jesus had to be a man so that he could identify with us, but more importantly, that he could suffer in our place. And he had to be sinless because a sinner cannot pay for the sins of others. Question 17 asks, why must he be also fully God? And the answer, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. So Jesus had to be fully God in order so that he could take on and satisfy God's wrath and secure for us true righteousness and life. Isn't that amazing? That's why Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. And it reminds me of that new hymn that we just started singing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, which says, Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King, he the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. God became a human being. He took on flesh in order to save us. Jesus' incarnation brings salvation. And now look again at verse 14. John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus didn't just make an appearance here on earth. He came and lived in it for 33 years. He dwelt among us. That phrase, dwelt among us, could also be translated to pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. John is pointing his readers back to the Old Testament, specifically the book of Exodus, and reminding them of how God manifested his presence to his people by dwelling amongst them in the tabernacle, in a tent erected in the wilderness. God has always been a God who draws near to his people. But the tabernacle was temporary. It pointed to something greater. 
They pointed to this, where Jesus, the Word, the Son of God, would take on human flesh and set up his tent among his people. He is the greater tabernacle. And he came in order to be face to face with you. Why did God dwell in a tent in the wilderness? Because Israel dwelt in tents. To be with them, God had to be like them. Jesus Christ took on flesh in order to be with you. He became like you. Isn't that awesome? He came to be near us, and he came to save us. And again, look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. There is one word that sums up all that has taken place. Glory. While he came to be like us, it is evident that he is very different from us. Jesus is the only son of God. He is unique and matchless. There is no one like him. And the glory that John and others saw was the glory of the one and only God. The only Son from the Father shares the same glory with the Father. And so when he became flesh, his glory was seen. And by using that word glory here, John again is pointing back again to Exodus. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses begs God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And in God's kindness, he provides a way for Moses to see his glory in part. God hides Moses behind a cleft in the rock, and Moses gets to see the afterglow of God's glory. Because no one can truly see God and live. And as the Lord passed before Moses... He says in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The two important words here are steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord says that he is abounding in them. He is full of them. Guess what? Steadfast love can also be translated as grace. Faithfulness can also be translated as truth. As Moses experienced God's glory, God revealed to him that he is abounding in grace and truth. God has always been this way, but in Jesus, we get a fuller picture in Jesus, we can see the glory of God. The glory of the Son of God is gracious towards us sinners without compromising God's truth. He's full of grace and truth. But we often choose one or the other, don't we, for Jesus? 
we like to define who Jesus is. So some of us like the Jesus who is full of grace. In our minds, he's walking around Galilee, healing people, hugging people, offering grace to all. He's the peace and love Jesus who overlooks sin. We love the grace Jesus. And then there's others of us who like the truth side of Jesus. We like the fact that he kind of goes to bat with those Pharisees and religious leaders of the day. We, we like the Jesus who drives the money changers out of the temple with a whip. This is a no-nonsense leader. He's always making demands. We like that Jesus. But John tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Grace and truth go together. They are two different things, but they go together. So what is grace? One commentator says, grace is God's favor and kindness given to those who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. Grace is God's favor and kindness given to those who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. And we see this clearly in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is gracious towards us, not on the basis of what we have done, but because it is in his nature to be gracious. And Jesus is full of this grace. He's full of it, meaning that there's never a time when his grace will run out. And the cross, the cross is where the fullness of his grace is seen. But Jesus is also full of truth. He doesn't tiptoe around the fact that there is something deeply wrong with us. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we have rebelled against him. We are selfish and prideful people. There is something, something deeply wrong with our own hearts. And our sin has separated us from God. And Jesus is not shy in explaining that we are sinners. As we go through the Gospel of John, you will see Jesus talking about sin and darkness a lot. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. He is full of truth. He makes the truth of the gospel fully known. In John's gospel, he depicts himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus taught that God will not set aside his justice in order to be gracious towards us. God will not set aside his justice in order to be gracious to us. <clears throat> Our sins must be punished. And so if God dealt with us according to just the truth, we would all be doomed. We would all be punished for our sins. But he deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. How does God maintain his justice and his mercy towards sinful people. He sends his son to come in the flesh and to do what we could never do on the cross. 
Jesus in his life, his death, and resurrection met all the demands of the law. He lived a perfect life, a perfect life that you or I could not live. He became flesh in order for his flesh to be ripped open, to become the perfect and final sacrifice for the sin, for our sin. And he rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. And now God is free to share the fullness of his grace towards those who trust in Jesus. And so a Christian is someone who sees the glory of God in Jesus. They see that fullness of his grace and truth. The world may see Jesus as this good and moral teacher, a social reformer, or even a pitiful victim. But a Christian reads the Gospels and sees the glory of Jesus. Do you see the glory of Jesus? Do you see him being full of grace and full of truth? He's the one who is God, who became flesh. He came to save. Those who believe are led to worship him and to follow in his example of being full of grace and full of truth. Moses asked God, please, God, show me your glory. And what did God say to him? You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But in Jesus Christ, the word became flesh so that God could show us his face. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, that was verse 14. <laughs> now on to verse 15. We have John the Baptist mentioned once again. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We won't spend much time here, but notice that John the apostle, the one who is writing this gospel, is comparing Jesus with John the Baptist. And he's showing us further proof of the incarnation here. John the Baptist said very simply that Jesus was born after him. Jesus started his ministry after him. He was after John, but he ranks higher than him. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Why? He says it right there. John says, because he was before me. The mystery of the incarnation. The word existed before he was born. John the Baptist was a great Man, Jesus said so, but he understood that Jesus is far greater, and we should see the same. Jesus should have priority in our church. Jesus should have priority in our homes and in our lives. And then in verse 16, John continues his thought on the word being full of grace and truth. He writes, for from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. What a good verse. 
All who believe in Jesus receive grace upon grace. I mean, we see this all throughout the Old Testament. There's example after example of God's grace towards his people, even if they're sinful and rebellious against him. And in Jesus, that grace is fully revealed. In the Greek, grace upon grace can literally be translated as grace in the place of grace. Grace in the place of grace. Grace just keeps on replacing itself. It's overlapping. Think about this. If you go to the ocean and you watch the waves, you don't know where one wave begins and the other ends. They just keep on coming. And that's the picture that we have to have in mind here. Waves of grace rolling over us. And if you believe in Jesus, there will never be a time when you go to Jesus asking for grace, where he will turn you away, away and say, I have no more grace to give you. There will never be a time where that will happen. Amen? In every circumstance, in joy and in sorrow, in light, in darkness, there is grace. When you feel like you have sinned too much, when you feel like you have exhausted God's grace for you and your life, there is more grace. Grace upon grace. His grace is sufficient. Now look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the first time that John mentions Jesus Christ by name in this prologue. And this is the verse that helps us kind of put the pieces together that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the word. And John gave that comparison between Jesus and John the Baptist in verse 15. And now he's giving a comparison between Jesus and Moses. John is showing us that as Jesus was greater than John the Baptist, Jesus is also greater than Moses. The law was given to Moses. Moses received the Ten Commandments from God, but grace and truth were not given to Jesus. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Jesus is greater than Moses. But I just want to clarify here that John isn't saying that the law was bad, and now that Jesus has come, we finally have something good. No, the law was always pointing to Jesus. The law was God's grace towards his people. The law was a gift that he gave to the people of Israel. No other nation was given the law. And the law made graciously clear what the will of God was for daily living. But the law could not save. The law revealed sin, revealed our need for mercy, but it can never remove sin. Augustine wrote this, the law threatened, but did not help. It commanded, but did not heal. It showed, but it did not take away our feebleness, but it made ready for the physician who was to come with grace and truth. Something better has come. Grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. The law could not save. 
Salvation does not come by trying to be good, trying to please God, trying to keep the rules and commandments of the Lord. Our every, I think Caleb prayed this earlier, our every thought, word, and deed is tainted by either greed or pride or some other self-seeking motive. We could never obey all the commandments of God. And this is why the Christian gospel is the only good news. Because all the world's religions say, do this and go to heaven. But the gospel offers grace through Jesus Christ. What we could not do, he has done for us. Salvation is a free gift received by believing in Jesus Christ. And now lastly, let's look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. Remember, this is why the incarnation is so amazing. All throughout scripture, we see that God is beyond the reach of men and women because of our sin. Our sin has separated us from him. And yet here in John's gospel, he is telling us, God came to us. The word became flesh. He has revealed his glory. He has extended his grace. And in this verse, he makes God known to us. Jesus Christ is the word. He is the ultimate revealer of God. And that phrase, he has made his, him known, can be translated that he has exegeted God or he explains God. Jesus is the only one who could make God who is beyond human comprehension known. And he does this without subtracting from who or what God is. And the reason for this is because he's at the Father's side. Some other translations say that he's in the bosom of the Father or he's near his heart. Remember in verse one, the word was with God. He's in close relationship with the Father. For those of us who are married, we think we know our spouses well, but we don't know everything. That's why sometimes we fail to communicate, right? Or we misunderstand each other's words. But Jesus' relationship with the Father is not like that. He is one with the Father. He is co-eternal with the Father. And so if you want to get to know God better, then get to know Jesus. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays this to the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh and to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent did you hear that? And this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. And by knowing him, by believing him, he gives eternal life. Bishop J.C. Ryle says this about the verses in our passage this morning. And now, after reading this passage, can we ever give too much honor to Christ? Can we ever think too highly of him? Let us banish the unworthy thought from our minds forever. Let us learn to exalt him more in our hearts and to rest more confidently the whole weight of our souls in his hands. Men may easily fall into error about the three persons in the Holy Trinity if they do not carefully adhere to the teaching of Scripture. But no man ever errs on the side of giving too much honor to, the, to God the Son. Christ is the meeting point between the Trinity and the sinner's soul. Wow. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All we need for life and salvation is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus' incarnation brings salvation and it reveals God's grace and glory. And so to those who have not received Christ, if you are here this morning and you do not believe in Jesus, consider what the God of the universe has done to make salvation possible. The maker of this world became flesh in order to save those who believe in him. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation to the world, but to save sinners from their sin. Salvation is freely offered to you. Religion won't save you, but Jesus can. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. And John wrote these verses inspired by the Holy Spirit so that you would believe in Jesus and experience eternal life. And so turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. And then to those of you who have received Christ, my brothers and sisters, John wrote this gospel so that your faith and belief in Jesus would grow. Remember what Christ has done. The eternal God really took on human flesh and lived on this earth in order to identify with us, but more importantly, to save us. And as we continue to struggle with sin in this life, remember that he has provided an abundance of grace, limitless grace towards his redeemed. Remember that line, grace upon grace. Grace. If Jesus has made God known to you, then what are you doing with that? Are you going through the motions of life, not really considering the benefits that you have in the gospel? 
You were meant to have life in Jesus, to find full satisfaction in him alone. And are, sh- are you sharing this good news with others? Being a follower of Jesus means that we look like the one we follow. Are you a grace and truth person? Or are you just one of those? We're not called to be just one. We're called to be grace and truth people. And find comfort from these words in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. The same writer of this gospel writes this at the end of 1 John chapter 5. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Speaking of Jesus there. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come. The Word became flesh and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And John ends with this amazing line. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Look to Jesus. Jesus' incarnation brings salvation and reveals God's glory and grace. Let's pray. God, we confess our inability to fully comprehend this amazing and awesome truth. And yet we praise you for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We thank you for coming down to this earth, becoming flesh in order to save unworthy sinners like us. We praise you that we have seen your glory in the face of Jesus. You are truly full of grace and truth. And we confess, Lord, that we struggle. We sin. We forget. We do not live the way that we should. And we often find comfort and security in things that are temporary. We are thankful for the fact that even in our sin, you extend grace upon grace. Help us to share this great news that you have come to save people from their sins. Lord, we pray that many would see and believe in Jesus Christ. We praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.